if it truly doesn't matter where you train, why do you tell me where to put the electrodes? And the people who will tell you it doesn't matter where to train will also tell you to stick the electrodes at C3 and C4. Well, if it doesn't matter where to train, I'm going to stick the electrodes wherever I damn well please, and uh, I, I should get the same outcome. Mm, didn't really work that way. The, the, the network you tap into is important in um, looking at uh, the entire brain and figuring out what location you should be training ends up being a critical piece to optimize the outcome. Uh, you, you can cut down the number of sessions um, if you're actually hitting the nail on the head instead of just pounding around where the nail is. Now, there are people that say um, it doesn't matter where you train. Uh, uh, the, the brain will transfer uh, through its networks to where it needs it, and it doesn't matter where you train. Well, uh, here uh, we have a, a, a FZC3 uh, beta uh, a training. It influences the left hemisphere, but it doesn't really influence the right hemisphere. And it directly influences the pre-motor area because the motor strip and the pre-motor area are obviously connected. Remember, 4S and 4, uh, the, the, the indirect connection through the subcortical location. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring tech neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. Hey, my name is Pete and today Jay Gunkelman is going to discuss ADHD's pathophysiology and treatment. Before we get to Jay, we got some Patreon love to dish out. We'd like to welcome our new gold supporter, NeuroGuide by Applied Neuroscience. Advanced features that make NeuroGuide the best for professional mental health care providers and researchers. Conventional and quantitative EEG at the same time. Imports from 45 different EEG amplifier formats. EEG auto artifact rejection without phase distortion. Download the free demo now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. Terry Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education, EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Three things our listeners and viewers can do to help spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform uh, you listen to us on. Five stars is appreciated, but Jake Uncleman will accept four and a half stars. And if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can help support our content, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with Jake Uncleman. The support helps us improve the quality of our content. We got ADHD, the Jake Uncleman screen share, patent pending. <laughs> uh, let's get this. So uh, we're, we're going to be talking about ADD, but before we, we do that, this, this is blood flow. Uh, hyperperfusion in the brain, uh, where, where the brain is getting lots of oxygen and glucose, or hypoperfusion. It's not getting a lot of oxygen and glucose. It's not on. Excuse me. Um, this is the average or mean level of perfusion. This is two and three standard deviations of increased perfusion, two and three standard deviations of decrease, and the solid lines are statistical significance. So um, delta, the, the, this is EG frequency across the, the x-axis, goes from DC or zero cycles a second on up to 40 cycles a second. The delta band is actually positive perfusion. During your slow wave sleep, your brain is busy doing things. You're not awake, but your brain is still busy. So we, we actually have delta as a positive perfusion. All of this is work out of UCLA's uh, uh, NPI lab. Uh, Ian Cook and Andy Luchter uh, did the studies. Um, uh, this is basic uh, uh, neurophysiology. Uh, the theta and alpha band up to about 10, 10, 11 
ends up being hypoperfusion. Uh, the 11 to about 16 is a neutral positive perfusion. And at about 16 hertz on up, it goes into hyperperfusion. So uh, it, you have to think of the brain being at rest with the alpha and theta state, idling, uh, gently on for the SMR band and quite actively on for the beta and gamma band. Now, in ADD, there was a study by Ernst uh, Niedermeyer. And Niedermeyer is really famous. He should be. Um, and uh, when he writes a paper, uh, you read it uh, because he's, you know, a, a foundational figure in EEG. And he wrote a paper uh, uh, talking about the frontal lobe disconnection in ADD. And the frustrating part about that was he didn't talk about what was the disconnection. Where, where is this disconnection? And what we basically find is, is uh, that he didn't tell anybody what circuit it was. He just said the frontal lobe and the motor strip are disconnected. Well, that was frustrating enough for me. Frustration leads to investigation to try and solve it. Now, that if you look at this, there isn't much frontal lobe here. This is a Mac monkey uh, uh, brain. Uh, and the, these stippled areas that are somewhat colored up are called suppressor strips. If you stimulate the suppressor strip, you inhibit an associated area. And area 4S is the premotor, supplementary, supermotor area in front of the motor strip. And area four is the motor strip. Well, um, there's obviously a relationship there, but um, uh, is it cortical cortical? Is this just a direct connection across the surface or uh, how, how does the frontal lobe connect? And there's already been studies in ADD that have shown the, uh, the, the head of the caudate uh, being disturbed, uh, the frontal lobe not being as uh, dense with gray matter. There's, yeah, various locations that have been identified as being off in ADD. Interestingly, this is area 4S and area 4, and the circuit goes from the surface down to the head of the caudate, over to the putamen globus pallidus, to the thalamus, and then up to the motor strip. This circuit is the ability of the frontal lobe to inhibit motor activity, thus the ability to stop hyperactivity. Now, if you add up all of the neurochemistry here, there's a net excess of one GABA. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Some more activity in this 4S gets less activity at area four. This frontal lobe can inhibit the motor activity. If the cingulate becomes involved in the circuitry, it goes frontal lobe to the caudate, to the putamus, the putamen globus pallidus subthalamus thalamus, and then up to the motor strip. That little twist, that little sidetrack that was thrown ends up adding another GABA. It becomes a double negative. So the frontal lobe stop command becomes the command stop stopping. Thus the perseveration, the, the obsessive compulsive stuck on that can happen with a cingulate. So this inhibitory circuit can become a perseverative circuit if the cingulate becomes involved in it. This circuit can be an on or an off, depending upon whether the cingulate's involved in it or not. Now, um, in ADD, ADHD, there was a group of over 400 kids in Australia. This is work by Bob Chabot, Robert Chabot at NYU, uh, and uh, Gordon Cervantes in Australia, who's since long since passed. Um, th th these patterns were uh, separate um, uh, clusters of patterns that look similar. And um, this is delta, theta, alpha, and beta. And you can see in this first one, there's an excess of the theta and kind of deficit of the beta, a theta-beta ratio issue. And others had an excess of theta, but it had quite a bit of beta. This wouldn't be a theta-beta issue. There's, there's actually alpha, there's beta there. Um, th this person has uh, theta, but also alpha. Uh, it, it, what, what, what they found is about half of the kids 
had a theta pattern as their failure mode for their ADD. About a third of them had alpha as their failure mode. Uh, about 15%, just shy of 15% were normal at rest. And uh, uh, about 10% basically had a beta spindle as their pattern. Now, much more recently, uh, basically starting with this paper, the identification of the beta spindle subset of those that had ADD was something people had to address. It wasn't always just too much theta and not enough beta. This one doesn't have enough theta and it's got an excess of beta. Um, so um, they, they realized there were all of these. Now, um, uh, the, the, these are uh, obviously subtypes of or subsets of, of the ADD ADHD uh, population. But ultimately, the theta pattern and the alpha pattern and the beta pattern are different endophenotypes. And uh, they're genetically linked patterns um, that, that end up being involved in this. So um, here's the, the caudate. Head of the caudate, the frontal lobe to the caudate to the, you know, the, this, this aspect of the circuitry uh, ends up being a piece of that network that we looked at here, that's this piece. So what else is comorbid with ADD, ADHD? Tourette's, uh, people that have ADD, ADHD, the hyperactive kids quite often have a comorbid Tourette's tick. The head of the caudate creates a motor tick when there's a discharge in the head of the caudate. The tail of the caudate merges with the stria terminalis and impinges on the amygdala hippocampus. And if the tail of the caudate has a discharge, the, the amygdala will give you emotional uh, 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 content and the hippocampus will give you memory content. So emotional speech, um, you know, Tourette people sometimes blurt out intensely some words uh, in the left hemisphere. Uh, it would be words in the right hemisphere. It would simply be sounds like a animal grunting or groaning or moaning or, you know, just sounds, not, a, not words. And the hippocampus gives you echolalia or parroting. When you hear something, you repeat it. It's, it's like a, a, an echo back. If, if, you hear, if somebody says something, they repeat it back. Now, Obviously, that's as annoying as can be. And uh, uh, if, if you've ever uh, had a sister or a brother who, who did the parroting back thing, you're, you're ready to, to pound the hell out of yep. them after a, after a few minutes of them parroting back stuff. So uh, it, it's socially annoying. And, uh, but the threat person doesn't have a choice. These are involuntary discharges. And in Tourette's, we see... Uh, about a third of the people with Tourette's actually end up having visible um, EEG discharges. And for those Tourette patients only, uh, an anticonvulsant can end up uh, um, helping with their Tourette's. We had a, a, a kid, um, a psychiatrist in the Bay Area, uh, uh, sent their EEG data through. We interpreted it and said, oh, look, an epileptiform discharge in the temporal area, and he's got Tourette's. Um, we're not trying to get him diagnosed as epileptic, but we suggest an empirical trial and an anticonvulsant. And uh, we'll see whether the ticks go away with an anticonvulsant. And sure enough, a low dose of anticonvulsant, lamictal, uh, uh, um, uh, basically uh, lamotrigine is the generic, um, but the, the brand name Lamictal, uh, and the ticks went away. The parents got totally freaked out um, because it was an anticonvulsant. And so they went to uh, UC uh, San Francisco Med Center, to the neurology department. They did their own EEG. And the neurologist um, basically said, well, you're on a very low dose. You know, we weren't trying to stop seizures. We were just trying to to stabilize the brain in a psychiatry, they don't treat epilepsy, uh, but they, they, they saw the, uh, the lamotrigine as, a, as something unneeded because there was no discharges in their EEG. And they basically suggested that they stop taking it. Now, it wasn't their prescription to alter. 
So they actually screwed up. You have liability if you change somebody else's prescription. You need to talk to the doctor who prescribed it. You don't tell the patient to quit it. Um, but they said, quit it. Um, so they pulled the uh, Lamictal. The kid started to tick again. Now the parents are totally freaked out. Um, they want to meet with me to explain all of it. I said, I'll be happy to meet with you, but you have to get the neurologist in San Francisco and their EEG and your psychiatrist and me and our EEG all together at the same time so we can actually explain all of this. It took a little while to get the logistics of this worked out, but we got the neurologist and me and the psychiatrist and the parents and, and the EEG from the doctor and the EEG from us. We looked at the neurologist's EEG, uh, no epileptiform discharge. Um, the, there's a phrase that the neurologists use, that absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. Just because you don't see something doesn't mean it's not happening. You just don't see it. So uh, um, I, I parroted that back to the neurologist. You know, you didn't see anything in your EEG. It uh, doesn't mean there isn't something happening. It means you didn't see it. We then looked at the EEG we had recorded, and he had to agree, yep, that's a spike. Um, and I then suggested that altering somebody else's prescription isn't exactly kosher, uh, and the neurologist is a little squeamish about having to admit it, but yeah, you're right. I, sh I should have contacted the psychiatrist instead of altering the prescription. And the empirical evidence is that the lamictal stopped the ticks. The spike was there. The lamictal stopped the ticks. The spike wasn't there anymore. You pulled the meds and the spikes came back. You tell me, should they be on this medication or not? And the neurologist had to agree. It was the right call, and they made a mistake. So, um, you know, the, the motor tick uh, and the guttural utterances uh, can end up being uh, something that may be triggered. Again, about a third of them that we see, we can see a spike in the EEG. And only for those people do you give them an anticonvulsant. If you give an anticonvulsant to everybody that has Tourette's, most of them won't respond because it's not a preponderance. It's like 30%. And, you know, if 70% don't respond, it's not going to look like a successful drug trial. Um, uh, but if you use a biomarker to guide the medication selection, at that point, it works beautifully. Now, uh, we, we've got the brainstem uh, uh, coming up and a, a projection to the front of the head. But there's also an ascending sensory fiber that has collaterals into the brain stem. This is the lemniscal pattern. This is the extra lemniscal. And the, this is a sensory relay, a somatosensory relay of something coming up to the somatosensory cortex. But it stimulates the brain stem. The multisynaptic ascending reticular activating system is stimulated. And that ends up stimulating the entire brain. If you see an, uh, an alpha rhythm in the posterior areas of the brain in the sensory area, it's a sensory relay that's idled. But if you see alpha up in the front, what's making it? Well, it's the diffuse thalamic projection system. It projects alpha everywhere from the thalamus. Um, and uh, it, it does spare the primary sensory areas. So, occipital poles, the primary auditory cortex, and to a certain extent, the somatosensory cortex will end up being spared this, this innervation. But the frontal lobes uh, get it. Now, why does this system exist? Well, if you hear the snap of a twig, you shouldn't just activate your auditory cortex. You might have to get up and get moving to save your butt from something that broke that twig. So the general activation of the brain from a sensory input is a very adaptive thing. Now, you know, even the image of um, a, a, a twig snap may end up triggering you if you've heard a twig snap and then got mauled by a bear. So, um, you know, PTSD probably has some uh, aberrant stuff going on with all this arousal um, uh, stuff with simply the image of something that used to be a caveman's problem. 
Um, I, I should warn you that these are human dissection. Uh, uh, this, this is to show uh, basically caudate, putamen, globus pallidus, thalamus. Uh, they, they don't zigzag around quite like that line drawing. Uh, they're, they're actually uh, adjacent to one another um, uh, in a subcortical location. Um, people do beta training. And uh, uh, here's the base period. Here they're training beta up. Here's a rest period. Now they're training beta up. Here's a rest period. Beta train, rest, beta, rest, beta, rest. You can see beta went up during the training of beta, and it went down during rest periods. Now, there are people that will say they trained beta and it did not go up, and they're right. There are also people that say that they trained beta and it went up, and they're right too. How can they both be correct? It's the kind of measurement you're using. If you're looking for how big beta is, beta doesn't get bigger, but there's more packets of beta per unit time this is magnitude, the average, the integral average of amplitude. If you're just looking at the amplitude, the size of the beta, beta is always going to be small. And it, uh, it, if, if, if you're talking about midgets, midgets don't get big. They stay midgets. But if you fill a room with midgets, you've got more midgets. So th this is like how many midgets are in the room and fewer and more and fewer. So um, it, when you're training beta and you want to see the increases, you have to average it across time and see the change in magnitude. QEG does magnitude. Raw waveforms, you look at amplitude. So if you're looking at the raw waveform, the beta didn't, didn't get any bigger, but there are more beta packets per unit time. If you add them up, you can see these increases. So the people who said they trained beta and it didn't go up are correct. It doesn't get any bigger. I mean, it's always going to be small inherently. One over F, the faster the frequency, the smaller you're going to be. Um, so uh, uh, th this explains the argument between two people that are both right and adamant that the other person is wrong. Um, uh, they're right, but so is the other person. Now, this is uh, actually uh, a, a paper uh, that, that, that was uh, done by Yuri Kropotov uh, talking about induced beta, beta that you, that you basically get because of a task. And this is a normal person. This is a high-functioning ADD measured by a CPT task, a continuous performance task like an IVA or a TOVA. Uh, test of variable attention, or uh, uh, basically it's a, a task that's going to tell you you have to hit the button or you shouldn't hit the button. This is a go signal, and this is a joint time frequency analysis, JTFA, from zero to 74 uh, cycles a second, and from time zero to 1,100 milliseconds later. So this is a second worth of data with a brief uh, base period just before it starts. Um, they were given a signal that tell them, tells them they had to hit the button. So about 500 milliseconds later, the brain responds to that signal by turning on beta at the F3 location because you have to hit the, the button with your right index finger. Uh, and uh, their, their button push happened at about 700 milliseconds. So there's a 500 milliseconds for conscious awareness and another couple hundred milliseconds for your reaction time. And this is normal, but you also have bursts of gamma. One, two, three, four, five, number six, six bursts of gamma in a second. The gamma is nested in theta and that's for motor function. So bursts of gamma in theta nests. Now, here's a high-functioning ADD. They did pretty well. I mean, their beta synchronized. It didn't happen at 500 milliseconds. It was slower. And they had a reaction time uh, that they pushed the button here at uh, 756 uh, uh, milliseconds. So three quarters of a second later, they actually hit the button. One, two, three, four, five, six packets of gamma. But they're awfully weak. Now here, these are robust bursts of gamma, chirps of gamma. Uh, 
gamma chirps in theta nests. What are we, a bunch of bird brains? You know, so, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't make sweet up tea. these terms. Uh, some bird brain made up those terms, you know. Um, but you can see the, the gamma bursts or gamma chirps in the nests. They're all there. Here's a low-functioning ADD, and their, their beta kind of, sort of, almost synchronizes. It's a little late. Uh, they, they, hit the, they hit the button at 904 milliseconds just before the time runs out for the next uh, trial. So, um, and you can see that some of the chirps are missing from the nests. So uh, the, the, there's a gamma deficit uh, in, in this patient as well. There's a bit of a weak gamma in even the high-functioning ADD compared to the normal person. And this is, again, brief bursts of theta, persistent, th excuse me, brief bursts of gamma. Persistent gamma is pathology. Uh, chirps of gamma is normal. You can see pathological gamma in thalamocortical dysrhythmias with pain, uh, movement disorders like Parkinsonism, tinnitus, uh, focus and epilepsy, uh, some forms of reward deficiency, uh, some eating disorders, obsessive compulsive, uh, depression, uh, those kinds of things. So there's, there's gamma that can be pathological as well. There are people that try to tell you that gamma is great stuff. You should train more of it. Uh, you know, you need to realize gamma is situationally good, but situationally could also be a bad thing. Uh, you don't necessarily just train it up um, uh, it, uh, randomly in anybody. Uh, you, you end up having to uh, find people that have low amounts of it and train it up. In the 1970s, there was a Dr. Shear. Um, uh, um, I think S-C-H-E-E-R in Houston. And uh, he created a, uh, well, the school system in Houston, you have to remember the early 70s, we didn't have the DSM like we have it now. And uh, kids were labeled as brain damaged, minimal brain dysfunction, retarded, um, learning disabled. I mean, they, they had all sorts of classifications, but they weren't really uh, well, well done classifications. They were just something wrong inside. Some kids not learning right, and and the the school system basically gave them to him to evaluate. If they had no gamma at all, he assumed that they were in fact probably brain damaged and couldn't make gamma. If they had some but not enough, like the low functioning ADD or the high functioning ADD, but without enough gamma, uh, he would take them into his program and teach them gamma. Um, at the end of one year in his program, they were put back into the school system, going from brain damage, retarded classifications, and again, very gross classifications. These, these aren't even politically correct terms to use anymore. You know, uh, I have to wash my mouth out with soap uh, for having said them even. Uh, 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 but, you know, uh, they were put back into the school system. They were classified as superior to uh, bright uh, uh, kids at that point. So, you know, they weren't really brain damaged and retarded. They were just in need of some specified uh, training to get their brains working better. And the, the gamma training in those learning disabled kids ended up giving them uh, uh, the ability to perform at a high level. I'd like to welcome our new gold supporter, NeuroGuide by Applied Neuroscience. Advanced features that make NeuroGuide the best for professional mental health care providers and researchers. Conventional and quantitative EEG at the same time. Imports from 45 different EEG amplifier formats. EEG auto artifact rejection without phase distortion. Download the free demo now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. You can see... Uh, the deficits in, in this slide. Now, the beta spindle variety of ADD, you can see the beta spindle here. Th these are frontal electrodes. These are frontal electrodes, and these are frontal electrodes. And the, um, this is one second. And if you counted all the little wiggles in the one second, this is beta up into the 20-something hertz range, as is this, as is this. The front of this person's head is uh, full of excess beta. 
beta spindles. And uh, the, these beta spindles are by definition abnormal if they're bigger than 20 microvolts. Well, 50 microvolts um, uh, is uh, basically uh, a millimeter here. And these are more than a millimeter. So uh, they, these are excessively sized and uh, uh, clinically abnormal by very definition. If you read Ernst Niedermeyer's book, Clinical Electroencephalography, and th that's a preposterous title. If you call your book Clinical Electroencephalography, you've got to think, well, who the hell thinks they can write that? You know, well, Niedermeyer, Lopes, De Silva together wrote that book and they, they earned the ability to use that title. Um, a, a fabulous compendium. And uh, what's it, seven editions now um, that, that it's gone through? I think seven, maybe eight now. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it's, uh, um, it, it's like the uh, unabridged dictionary or encyclopedia set about EEG all in one text. And he'll, he says beta spindles larger than 20 microvolts are by definition abnormal. And this is an abnormal amount. Now, alpha band tuning is important. Uh, th this is uh, uh, Wolfgang Klemisch's lab out of Salzburg, Austria, and Michael Doppelmeyer. Um, and uh, the, uh, I, I think he was still a grad student at the time as the, the first author on this. But what you basically find is that if you have slow alpha, you don't do so well on semantic and declarative memory performance. You got to remember what was the name of that. Uh, you know, declare. I have to declare something. This is that. I can name it. Uh, the, I can give it a name. Semantic. So uh, um, you know, factoids. Uh, um, how well are you uh, at pulling factoids out of where you wherever you pull them from, and and spitting them out? Well, if your alpha is slow. You're not so good at it. Your performance for pulling facts and figures out is a little funky. If your alpha is fast, you have a high performance. Your your memory clicks. You know every little thing that's stuck in there comes spewing out, and fast alpha ends up having that. Now, um, in two thousand two thousand and one 2002, somewhere in that range, I invited uh, Wolfgang Klemisch to come over and, and teach about alpha and theta and memory and, uh, and to expose them to neurofeedback. But uh, Klemisch was already booked. I mean, he's, he's world-class famous. He was one of the top 60 researchers internationally, not EEG researchers, just researchers and uh, a major laboratory at Salzburg, Austria. Uh, uh, he couldn't come, but he sent Michael Doppelmeyer. And uh, Michael's an academic in, in Europe, and he came over, did a great job teaching about alpha and theta and memory uh, function, and uh, uh, had a really good time at the meeting. Um, uh, <laughs> we partied really well. Um, and uh, he went back over, uh, flew back uh, into Frankfurt, and uh, um, uh, Wolfgang picked him up and drove back to Salzburg. And on the trip back to Salzburg, they came up with three years of research using this crazy technique of neurofeedback to teach voluntary control over these systems. The first research they came up with is, gee, this is a correlation study. Alpha frequency correlates with memory performance. Is it correlation or is this causal? let's take some people with slow alpha and operantly condition them or instrumentally train them to speed up their alpha and see if their memory gets better. Sure enough, it's a causal relationship. Uh, speed up the alpha. And the, they started to refer to alpha frequencies as individual alpha frequencies, IAF. IAF plus one was something you could train. If your peak was at nine, make it 10. If it's at 10, make it 11. Uh, speed up that slightly slow background and you get an enhanced semantic and declarative memory. So uh, uh, the, the, these were uh, uh, substantial 
uh, uh, changes uh, in an academic center in Europe that now has fully adopted the use of neurofeedback to manipulate brain function. Now it's a consciousness and sleep lab. Now, one of our luminaries is Barry Sturman. And Barry came up with SMR. And SMR is uh, useful for lots of things. And in the 1980s and 90s, if you asked one of the therapists busy in the field, um, can you help with insomnia? They would have said yes, because it was their experience that SMR would end up helping with sleep onset and wakefulness forms of insomnia. But let's say somebody called you onto the carpet in front of your licensing board and you had to show that what you were doing was in fact a, an efficacy proven technique. Well, I'm sorry, but the evidence you're standing on to call it fully efficacious is Barry Sturman saying, oh, sleep spindles went up when we trained SMR in cats. Oops, that's not human. Uh, efficacy quality research. And Lubar, in a study on hyperactive kids where they trained SMR, said, oh, by the way, in the discussion section, they, these kids said that they slept better. Oh, anecdote. Uh, it, it's just, so far, if, if, if you're making this claim, uh, you're on thin ice. And in fact, you're probably walking on water. And unless you're a deity, walking on water doesn't work so hot. So um, your, your licensing board would, would probably rip you up one side and down the other for doing this crazy EEG stuff for insomnia. However, Salzburg, Austria picked up on in 2005. Now, 2001, 2002, when we exposed them to the neurofeedback virus and they contaminated their lab uh, with the thought of operant conditioning, they, they started to actually do it. They, they had students that were getting their PhDs that were doing neurofeedback research in their consciousness and sleep lab. Uh, the, uh, uh, and sleep, insomnia. So they recruited a bunch of insomniac college students. Now, these aren't like the world's worst insomniacs. These are just like regular people who are saying, I'm not sleeping so well. You know, the the stress of university, the noise in the dorm, if you're bur bomber, uh, uh, that, you know, you can't really sleep in these dorms very well. So um, they, they taught SMR and they observed that people slept better. And it's a very detailed uh, study. The control group got random frequency training. They'd come in one day and they'd train a different frequency band. They never trained SMR, but they would train randomly, just pick a band, some band, any band, and they would train it. But if you don't train more than one session, you're not going to learn. There's no learning curve there. Uh, so the, the control group was random frequency training. And they, again, uh, found uh, very good outcomes. Um, that was replicated exactly, the, the, a, a perfect replication in Graz, Austria, at Furcheller's lab. And uh, Furcheller's lab... Uh, uh, um, uh, basically was a, 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 an independent systematic replication of the same study. So you'd think, well, that, that settles it, doesn't it? Uh, not really, because you're using like Johnny down the hall who can sleep so well. But Johnny down the hall who can't sleep so well isn't a world-class insomniac. He's just like a college student who can't sleep so hot. So uh, Manuel Chavez at, at, in Salzburg recruited world-class, serious, can't-sleep-for-shit insomniacs. And they did 10 sessions, which is the protocol that was done in the earlier studies, and they found it not to be fully effective. Now, I hypothesized at the time that it was a dose effect. If you're a really serious insomniac, you need a bigger dose of the neurofeedback training than just 10 sessions. In the United States, Diego Garcia Rodriguez in, in, um, uh, in at Alliant University down in San Diego under Richard Gewurz got his PhD doing this study. He replicated the experimental group, not the control group, but the experimental group 
recruiting severe insomniacs. We, we only ruled out insomniacs from the study that were severe if they had epileptiform content in the EEG. Uh, that's the only exclusion criteria that was really used. And, and there weren't many, I think only a couple of them. Uh, but they had 20-something subjects, and they did 24 training sessions and found uh, very good clinical outcomes using uh, Actigraph and uh, sleep reports and all the, the kinds of measurements that you'd use. So um, a higher dose was quite effective. I figured it would be because we had already done work with the elite athletes in Australia. Uh, we had done the, the EEG, QEG studies on them, and uh, they, they did uh, uh, 20 plus training sessions and found good clinical effect. Uh, uh, world-class insomniacs a little tightly wound um, and uh, the, the, the sleep is an issue. And if you're not sleeping well, you can't be an elite athlete. I mean, that it, you, you can kind of be an elite athlete, but you're not going to be at your very best. And uh, at a world-class level, it's shades of gray. It's not black and white as to who wins. It's shades of gray. You, you win by hundredths of a second, you know, and, and uh, th this is very, very, very small differences at that level. If you're not sleeping well, you don't get slow wave sleep, slow wave sleep, growth hormone, growth hormone. You recover from the wear and tear of the workout. If you're not recovering from the wear and tear of the workout, you're going to end up with a muscle strain, a muscle pull, um, it, 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 you're, you're not uh, learning what you learned during the day from your coach either. REM sleep, you play back memories from the day through the new connections you've just grown with the growth hormone. Uh, and if you're not sleeping well, you don't get REM sleep, which gives you the ability to remember on a long-term potentiated basis what you just learned from the coach. So how can you operate at a world-class level if you're not listening to the coach, even though you heard it, it doesn't stick because you're not sleeping. So, uh, the, you know, we've, uh, alpha, uh, the, the SMR training in insomnia has been proven to work very well with elite athletes, world-class insomniacs, regular insomnia people, and people that just want to end up having a more stable sleep if you're doing neurofeedback and your client isn't sleeping well, they're going to have a much longer training because they're not integrating what they've learned during the session to carry it over to the next session. So instead of 30, 40 sessions, you might go 50, 60 sessions. That's an expensive error. You know, fix your sleep pattern and your efficiency of your learning curve is enhanced not just for neurofeedback, but for schoolwork, for work work, uh, for, you know, memory uh, consolidation happens in sleep. And you've got to be able to sleep well. And as Clemish's laboratory and Michael Doppelmeyer ended up heading the laboratory after Clemish retired, goodness knows everybody I know is retiring, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Bob Chabot, um, uh, Leslie Pritchip, and Roy John are all NYU, um, and uh, uh, the, the, they basically have a nice paper here summarizing the literature on uh, learning uh, issues and attention issues in kids. Um, it, uh, it, it was a, a good paper back in the era in 2001 uh, was when this was published. So, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you can actually enhance schoolwork in kids by getting their EEGs tweaked. And um, uh, the, the, the studies in school uh, for ADD kids in school are really quite, um, uh, uh, quite uh, interesting. They, they kind of point towards um, something that should be instituted in a school setting. Um, Vince Manastra, uh, who's a, a researcher who's in my age range too, he's probably retired by now for all I know. Um, but, but Vince uh, uh, was a theta-beta ratio uh, fellow. Uh, Manastra, Linden, and Lubar did the original theta-beta CZ study. 
but Vince is a, a, a clever fellow and he comes up with some interesting research designs. He got a school setting to agree that if a kid was thought to be hyperactive, they'd send him over and he'd look at the theta beta ratio. And if they had a high theta beta ratio, they would be entered into his study. So if they didn't have a high theta beta ratio, it was a different thing. It, it wasn't the kind that they wanted to work with. Um, but methylphenidate works very well with high theta, low beta. So every kid in the study got methylphenidate. Half the kids in the study also got neurofeedback. Six months later, they pull the meds. If you just got meds only, you're back to your hyperactive self. If you got neurofeedback, you're still stable. You learned how to not be an ADD, ADHD, hyperactive kid uh, from the neurofeedback. So it's a very, very nice study. Uh, uh, the, the control group basically uh, got methylphenidate only. The treatment group got methylphenidate and neurofeedback. And uh, the difference of outcome after the meds were pulled, uh, all the kids got better briefly. Um, but only the kids with the neurofeedback ended up staying well. Uh, this is o o OCD as a, a, an issue. Um, uh, Leslie Pritchard at NYU actually looked at uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and there's only one kind of OCD. Uh, look in the DSM. You know that uh, uh, most categories have multiplied into sub varieties, and there's only one kind of OCD. And um, as such, uh, NYU, where they do neurometrics, uh, the, the computer analysis of the EEG uh, uh, to come up with their work, uh, they, they did um, a cluster analysis. And a cluster analysis, if you tell it to find two clusters, it'll find two. The question isn't, will it find it? Because it will. If you tell it to find five, it'll find five. The question is, are they meaningful categories or are, are these just you know, uh, subtle differences that are meaningless. And uh, uh, they, they basically took a group of people at an OCD and the cluster analysis, because there's only one kind of OCD, they said, find two. Now, could have found male and female. Yeah, that's, that's two, two kinds. But the cluster analysis found an alpha pattern and a slow pattern. And the alpha pattern had an 85% positive response to an SSRI. If you look in the literature, most of the time SSRIs are lucky to hit 50%. And this is a lock and key uh, uh, anterior cingulate alpha. Uh, you've got a high probability uh, that you're going to end up responding positively. And they the classically Luvox, uh, fluvoxamine uh, for OCD. Um, the theta pattern, 15% responded. And you get a 35% response to a placebo. So a 15% response rate is essentially a non-responding group. So the, it was a differentiation into two clusters because they said to find two. If they would have said find three, they would have probably found what we found is the beta spindle pattern is a third cluster. And the beta spindle pattern, the theta pattern, basically 15% respond, but basically it's a non-responding group. 85% of the people in the group don't respond. It's just a waste of time and money for them. They don't get bad. They, they don't have a negative response. It's just, it's a waste of time and money. Um, the beta pattern, unfortunately, to fluvoxamine or Luvox, again, the knee-jerk uh, SSRI for OCD, they have a, they have a meltdown. Uh, they'll have an anxiety attack or a panic attack. Um, it, it gives them a gross over-arousal. It's a mistake. If you look at the EEG before you prescribe the medication, you can avoid that mistake. You can avoid the waste of time, which is less of a problem, but uh, avoiding the patient melting down and having a panic attack. And, um, you know, if you've got a, an OCD um, that you're focusing on something like suicidality um, and, and you end up getting the wrong med, uh, you may actually do something about it as opposed to just having a lack of response. So the, the lack of response isn't a good thing, even though they don't have a 
negative response to the med. Uh, if you have OCD, you need relief uh, from that, especially if you're focused on some things. Uh, OCD can be just obsessing about something, uh, checking the locks, washing the hands, um, you know, obsessing about the cleanliness. Uh, 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 the Israelis have a, <clears throat> the ability to use a, a TMS machine to stimulate the anterior cingulate. And they have a, an interesting video. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> they, what they do is they try to evoke the obsession and then stimulate. So you want to create the OCD obsessive state and then hit the button for the stimulation. And the, the video that they have, they have a woman who's obsessed about her purse. And it's a very nice purse. You know, if you're obsessed about a purse, at least you've got a nice one to obsess about. And they have it, and they, they have it on a table. And uh, you can see her feet. The perspective is like shot from over her shoulder. You can see her feet. You can see the researcher. You can see the purse. And uh, he says, I'm going to take your purse. And I'm going to move it down to this chair. And you can see her get a little nervous. Her feet are a little twitchy. And uh, he, he then puts a piece of paper down on the floor and he says, I'm going to move your purse to the floor. And this woman starts to actually twitch in this chair. Her, her obsession with her purse and the cleanliness of her purse is getting a bit iffy. It's going down to the floor, you know, and, and, and only now when they've got her totally jacked up about the obsession do they then stimulate and they can stimulate the anterior single. They have what's called an H coil. that can shoot a real deep pulse. Um, you have to have a double cone coil or an H coil to get deep enough to get the singulate. Uh, but uh, they, they now do TMS uh, for OCD. It's been shown to be quite effective. It's been approved in the U S uh, by FDA, but very few insurance companies cover it. They're just now starting a few years later, they're just starting to get a little bit of insurance approval uh, for actual treatment, even though the FDA approved it as an uh, effective uh, uh, treatment uh, a few years ago. And it, it was approved in Europe a few years before that. Interestingly, if you don't sleep well, the TMS treatment doesn't work until after you treat the sleep disorder. There's learning You'd think, well, TMS is just a treatment, but there's something that's being learned and it's not learned if you're not sleeping. Uh, Martine Arns showed that if you have a sleep disorder, the OCD treatment doesn't work until after you treat the sleep disorder. Anyway, um, the, the OCD is uh, uh, something that can be dealt with. And uh, uh, the, the two clusters that were identified by Pritchip um, uh, it, Leslie Pritchard and Roy John. Um, uh, uh, actually, Roy is, is uh, long since passed. Uh, Leslie's the head of the brain research uh, brain research lab at NYU still. Um, the first year I did a conference for then SSNR. Uh, uh, the, the board of directors heard a talk I gave and I was quoting people they hadn't heard of. And they had a meeting coming up six months in uh, ahead in, in Aspen and they had no keynote speakers. And uh, the, they came up to me after my talk and said, we'd like you to co-chair the meeting in Aspen and invite keynote speakers because we don't have any. I said, well, let me get this straight. You're going to pay for my flight to Aspen. You're going to pay for my hotel room in Aspen. I get to invite people I want to listen to as keynote address people. What about this? Would I not agree to, you know, <laughs> of course I will go chair your damn meeting. And I, I called Roy and Roy's kind of like me. Uh, he's a t-shirt kind of a guy, uh, very down to earth. Um, he was actually on McCarthy's blacklist. Um, uh, he's the head of Cuban neuroscience. He would take high-speed powerboats from uh, Miami down to Cuba uh, uh, and, and teach, basically. Loretta, low-resolution electromagnetic tomography that everybody uses. 
Roberto Pascal Marquis was in Cuba, Roy John at NYU and Montreal Neurological. They worked together to come up with the Loretta. And the, the software code was written by Cubans. And, you know, Roberto Pascal Marquis escaped from Cuba when he went to a scientific meeting and didn't go back. And although his family was persecuted by, uh, for it, um, uh, that, you know, uh, he had to get out in order to end up uh, really succeeding in life. And uh, he went to the uh, Zurich, to the uh, Key Institute for Mind-Brain Studies, who owned the Loretta Code. Uh, so, um, and anyway, it's, it's an interesting field. And I, I would uh, suggest um, uh, that, that individuals who are interested in neuromodulation and neurofeedback um, need to look into the history, not just the current research, but look into the history to see where all this came from. Uh, who are the old timers? Um, who, who are the people that are retired and gone, uh, long since passed? Um, uh, what were their contributions? In order to know what you're looking at now, you have to know where it came from. Uh, it'll give you a clarity for understanding what's going on right in front of you now that you won't have if all you look at is what's in front of you now. Uh, knowing where things came from uh, gives you a, a depth of perception in this field that you're not going to have otherwise. And um, I, I'd urge people to look deep into the history of our field in order to get a, an appropriate uh, uh, respect for and understanding of what we've got going now. Hey, we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. Hey, we'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors, NeuroGuide by Applied Neuroscience, advanced features that make NeuroGuide the best for professional mental health care providers and researchers. Conventional and quantitative EEG at the same time, imports from 45 different EEG amplifier formats, EEG auto artifact rejection without phase distortion, Download the free demo now at AppliedNeuroscience.com slash NeuroGuide. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education, EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Register now at EEGstrategies.com. Hey, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform that you use. Uh, Jay prefers five stars, but he will accept four and a half stars. And if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. Because, hey, if you really, really like us and want to support our content, you can always buy us a cup of coffee because we love our Patreon peeps. Don't we, Jay? We do. You know... I got an email uh, from a mother who listened to the show, uh, Jenny. Oh, really? Jenny's kids had some difficulty with uh, uh, an issue, and uh, they heard something on the podcast, and she uh, got a hold of me through Messenger and uh, asked a question, and I sent her a couple of papers. I got a note uh, 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 very recently, just yesterday, uh, uh, thanking me uh, for, uh, she blamed me for her success. <laughs> and I, I, I don't like that. I mean, uh, uh, her, her uh, focus uh, and advocacy for her kids are, are what got them the success. Uh, but um uh, I, I sent her some papers on uh, ADD and medication prediction and a paper on mu, a deep paper on mu. And uh, uh, she basically ended up having um, uh, the, the paper on mu just clicked for her. And uh, she actually uh, asked her uh, pediatrician to prescribe a hormone nasal spray um, uh, oxytocin uh, for uh, uh, enhancing social skills and reducing mu. And the pediatrician said, I, I, I don't, I, I've never <laughs> heard of that. I don't know anything about that. And uh, so, uh, uh, but she, she finally got her connection to, uh, uh, to 
uh, to it. And it worked so well, she ended up uh, calling to thank me. And I, I, again, put it back on her. As I say, don't <laughs> blame me for your damn success. You know, That's right. If something didn't work well, I'll own that. But if it worked really perfectly, you, you did it, you know, so. That's um, right. Uh, anyway, good, good for you, Jenny. Way to way to way to take control of of what's going on, Jay. Thank you for being you. And all we're trying to do is make the pie bigger, so we can get these dang insurance companies to start paying their fair share. Absolutely. Uh, and Thanks for your show, Pete. And on that note, cue the music. <laughs> <laughs>